Clojure is a dynamically typed functional language that runs on the JVM. Today's guest, Alex Miller, gives us an overview of Clojure's core functionality. Alex is a developer of Cognitect, and he is the founder of the Strange Loop Conference as well. There's some great talks from the Strange Loop Conference, if you haven't heard of Strange Loop, on YouTube, so check those out. In today's episode, we discuss the data structures, the garbage collection strategies, and the concurrency support of Clojure. How does Clojure compare to other JVM languages like Scala and Groovy? How does Clojure copy immutable data structures without copying all of the data? How does a Clojure program get evaluated and converted to Java bytecode? These questions and many others are discussed in this episode. Before we get to that episode, a few quick announcements. Software Engineering Daily community has started working on a project called Software Daily. We are building an open source news and information site about software, and we've been making significant progress. We are particularly looking for somebody who is familiar with React.js or Node.js, and particularly somebody who wants to build the server side aspect of Software Daily. This is an open source project. Uh, There's not really any like profit designs in mind, but we just want to build a really good software engineering news and information site. And you can also go to softwareengineeringdaily.com where you can find out how to become a host for Software Engineering Daily. You can find links to the Slack channel, links to my Twitter account, my email. You can sign up for our newsletter featuring curated content that we find throughout the week. Alex Miller is a developer at Cognitect and the founder of the Strange Loop Conference. Alex, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hello. Glad to so, be here. T- yeah, t- I'm happy to have you. Um, there have been actually a lot of listeners who have been asking for more episodes about Clojure, so I'm happy to have you on to talk about Clojure. And let's start by just saying, what is Clojure? Uh, Clojure is a dynamic functional language. Uh, it runs on the JVM, and then there's also dialects, uh, Clojure Script, and Clojure CLR that run um, on uh, well, transpile to JavaScript, and that run on the Clo- on the um, .NET uh, virtual machine as well. And the creator of Clojure is Rich Hickey. Why did he create Clojure initially? Uh, well, I think the um, what he wanted was something that. Um, had the the small core and flexibility of Lisp um, that ran on a host that provided a lot of facilities, so things like garbage collection um, and um, high you know high performance over time, and you know with the just in time compiler and things like that. Um, that also had um, immutable data structures and um, functional programming and um, good support for concurrency. Right. And it seems like some of the desires he had in creating Clojure were around his discontent as a Java developer and just object-oriented programming in, in general. Uh, I think he had been doing a lot of C-sharp, a lot of Java. What was the source of the skepticism around object-oriented programming in these types of languages, Java and C-sharp? I think part of the problem is um, so. So some of the things that uh, I think Clojure sort of picks and chooses which parts of OO um, it it sort of carries on, and so the idea of polymorphism of having sort of conditional behavior based on some aspect of your data 
is a good one and one that exists in Clojure uh, in a couple of interesting ways. Um, but the aspects of OO that um, Rich was less enthused about were uh, encapsulation uh, and sort of concrete inheritance. Uh, so those two things are, are things you will not find in, in Clojure. Uh, and what are the problems that those lead to? Yeah, so with OO, um, the problem with OO is that it bundles things together, right? It bundles this notion of um, uh, usually you're storing your data in fields, um, and then you're encapsulating that inside of a class and protecting it, and then providing access to that through uh, through methods or some sort of accessors. Um, so there's a bunch of problems with that. Uh, and, and I'll mostly speak from like a Java perspective because I have a long Java background before I came to Clojure. Uh, so that's what I'm most familiar with. But I think most of these things also um, translate to some degree to other things like C++ and C Sharp and uh, Ruby, things like that. Um, so the uh, problem with fields and, the, and this notion of fields is like in, in Java at least, the um, those fields don't come with any sort of protection built in. So uh, a lot of the encapsulation involved is basically giving you hooks to allow you to um, uh, to add safety around access to field data. Um, that otherwise we would just access the fields directly, but that's not typically what's done in Java. Typically, you go through a, some sort of getter method, and that gives you the opportunity to make a field, you know, synchronized or something like that. Uh, and I, and I think the, the the problem there is that uh, so so the, so closure takes a completely opposite approach of instead of building things around these uh, mutable fields that can change in place, instead we build up data and that data is immutable and sort of immutable value. So you start with immutable pieces at the bottom, things like um, numbers and um, booleans and strings. Uh, strings aren't immutable in every language, but most modern languages, those are immutable as well. And that includes Java. Uh, and then how do you sort of start to compose those? And, and in Java, you, you use, you know, an array list or a hash map or something like that. Um, and, and that, as soon as you do that, you then have this mutable object that's wrapped around your, your uh, immutable values. And so in Clojure, we have persistent collections, um, uh, vectors, sets, lists, and maps. And those core collections are all immutable, which means that you can treat a vector of, you know, of other values as an immutable value and pass it around. And it it's starts life um, and continues its life for its entire existence as an immutable um, thread safe thing. And so you don't need to protect access to it because it is inherently safe to pass it around. And you never have right. to copy it or things like do things like that. So you're talking now about Clojure's encouragement of immutability and immutable data structures, and this ties into the fact that Clojure is a functional programming language. Why are immutable data structures so useful for functional programming? Well, like I said, um, one of the biggest benefits is that they're inherently thread safe. So um, that eliminates a whole class of of really nasty and hard problems with sort of sharing uh, data across threads uh, that you have to deal with in languages that are based on 
uh, sort of mutable fields and locks and things like that. So you you never do any sort of locking uh, type semantics in enclosure really. Um, and so you can just very safely pass around your data across threads and not care about any of that stuff. Um, functional programming, uh, with respect to that, um, it generally um, things are happiest in Clojure when you your program is primarily uh, immutable values, which most things are by default, and pure functions that translate from one immutable value to another immutable value. Um, you can write, uh, you know, very large uh, percentage of your programs that way, uh, and that's that makes them easy to test. Uh, and it makes them easy to reason about because you know that a function will always, you know, produce the same output if given the same input. Uh, and uh, those are both uh, great things. So since we aren't mutating our data structures, does that mean that we're copying them on a regular basis? Uh, no. And so that's kind of the, if you go back and look at like the commit history for closure, you'll see that there's just... There are a couple of core areas that were the first things that Rich worked on. And one of those is the persistent collections. Uh, and the trick with persistent collections is that you want to use what's called structural sharing. So as you modify, sort of in air quotes, a, an immutable persistent collection, um, you create a new collection. But because the old one is immutable, you can share large portions of its state. And that means that you can efficiently create a new data structure um, because you only have to create a little bit of extra structure that reuses a lot of the old structure. And sort of the, the, the simplest way to think about this is if you think of a, a linked list, uh, a linked list is a persistent data structure. It has all of these same properties. Uh, if you have an ex existing linked list and you want to um, add a new element at the beginning, um, you can do that. You just create a new cell and point to the old linked list. And so um, that allows you to share 100% of the old one and just add on a new element at the beginning. Uh, is this what's called path copying? Um, th that is not. Um, so the when you look at, uh, in particular, vectors and uh, in closure, uh, sets are really based on the map implementation. Um, so really the two... Uh, the two different uh, implementations that are important are really vectors and maps. Uh, and they're both based on this sort of tree structure internally. And so the notion is that when you, for example, add an element into a vector uh, at the end of a vector, that you might re be able to reuse most of the existing um, tree that's representing the old vector and then sort of add a new root on top or a new path on the side uh, or if you modify an existing thing, you might be able to share subtrees on either side, um, but just copy the path in the middle and uh, modify just the portions that have changed. Okay, so if I am using these data structures in Clojure, do I need to be uh, explicit about how I'm copying data structures or does this typically get taken care of under the hood for me? You don't need to care at all. So, I mean, you can just pretend that it's a collection that has functions that operate on it. And so the, it has, if you have a vector, then you have functions like conj, which is short for conjoin, which just means to add a new element where it's efficient, uh, which for vectors is at the end. Or uh, if you've got a map, you have um, uh, a function called associ, which is short for associate. And so that associates a new key value pair into the map. Um, 
but and then it gives you back a new map. And so all you do is just invoke a function on the map and get back a new map. How do these aspects of Clojure data management change the garbage collection story for Clojure? Well, it, it, it requires a garbage collector. So that's kind of a, that's an important part um, <laughs> because uh, you are going to be, uh, you know, making it, you're creating linked structures in memory, right? And over time, people are going to stop, you know, stop referencing um, some or all of a data structure. And at that point, the GC has to notice and, and clean those up. Um, fortunately, the JVM has had probably more thousands of person years of, uh, you know, effort put into it than any other platform on the on the planet. Um, and so there's, uh, there's a ton of work that's gone into that to make that um, good and fast and tunable and, and work in a wide, wide variety of conditions. Not that it's perfect. You know, obviously, if you know anything about, if you've messed with garbage collectors at all, there's all sorts of cases that don't work for you, right? Yeah. So, so when you write a garbage collector for a language that's built on top of the JVM, does that mean you have to fork the garbage collector and, and write a new one? Or how exactly does that work? No, not at all. So, I mean, that's the big, the big benefit of, um, of building on top of a platform with as many features and uh, you know, stability as the JVM is that you get that for free. So the way that Clojure works is, uh, or the, the way Java works is that you take Java source code, which is compiled by the Java compiler into Java bytecode or JVM bytecode, which is then run on the Java virtual machine. So there's really two layers, um, the Java source, and then there's also the JVM bytecode. And so what Clojure does is it it takes Clojure source code and compiles it directly to JVM bytecode. Um, and then, so once you've done that, then you're you're doing exactly the same thing that the Java compiler does, and and uh, you get that for free basically. When you construct objects in the JVM, uh, once they're no longer used, then they're available for garbage collection. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing special that needs to be done there, really. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit more about just writing code in Clojure. Uh, one premise of Clojure is that, as you said, we can build a substantial portion of our programs simply using these simple data structures like maps and lists and vectors. And so this should be an idiomatic part of the language because it will reduce the size and complexity of our programs. How does the language encourage using these fundamental data structures rather than, you know, I think of Java. In Java, I'm always making new data structures to do my new functionality. Uh, Well, I mean, that's just really what, uh, how all closure code is written. Um, I mean, there is a closure sort of collection model, and I've written a lengthy post on this on my blog at insideclosure.org. I think it actually is the last thing I wrote there. So <laughs> if people are looking for it, that's easy to find. Um, but uh, Clojure does actually have a really nice um, set of collection interfaces written in Java under the hood. Uh, and then the Clojure um, collections um, are implemented in terms of those interfaces. And then most things in Clojure are really written in terms of those these sort of collection traits, things like whether it's sequential, whether it's reversible, whether it's sorted, that sort of thing. Um, so it is actually possible to write your own Clojure collections and that do customized things uh, and have them, and they're really treated as first-class collections by Clojure if you do that. Uh, and that's a really, that's I'd say more of an intermediate to advanced 
level usage, you can certainly write many applications without ever needing to do that, but uh, it can be a useful tool to pull out of the toolbox. Um, as it turns out, I mean, you really, those are really the core collections, the uh, list set vector and map are really cover you uh, to a great degree. And then Clojure does actually also have sorted sets, sorted maps, and a few other um, uh, things that are used a little bit less frequently. And then there's some libraries that people use for, uh, for some additional things, but um, really combinations of those uh, can really get you uh, pretty far. Sure. And to talking at a lower level, could you give us an overview of the Clojure type system and kind of explain what makes Clojure's type system unique? The sort of primitives that you work with in the language are um, uh, strings, obviously, and characters, uh, booleans. Um, then you have uh, the number support is, is pretty involved, <laughs> maybe more more involved than, than it's worth going into. But um, uh, and there's sort of a complicated story there because it is built on top of Java. And um, the idea with Clojure is to be able to achieve Java-level performance. And so um, the Java fixed point or I mean, fixed precision um, types are sort of uh, used by default. So you're, you're going to be leveraging um, Java, you know, Java ints and longs and doubles and things like that. Um, and so... Uh, but with that said, Clojure also prefers that you sort of blur over some of the details of those things. That you focus really on um, fixed precision integers, arbitrary precision integers, fixed precision um, uh, floats, and, and arbitrary precision floats, and, and really treat those as sort of the four main categories. Uh, there are some extension libraries that give you a more in-depth numeric tower and, and different things like that. Um, and then we have uh, symbols. And so symbols are just words. Usually they look like words. Um, and they can be pretty broad. They can be pretty broad in terms of what they include, uh, much broader than what you'd see in like a Java method name or something like that. And symbols are really used as names. They're things that refer to other things. And so you might have something that is plus. Plus is um, a symbol that you would see in your code. And it refers to the plus function. Um, or you might see... Um, you know, closure.core, that's a symbol that refers to a namespace. And so symbols are used to name things, um, things that you're going to look up. Uh, and then we also have keywords. Keywords start with a colon and then are look like symbols. Otherwise, they're typically words and things like that. Um, keywords are a little different in that they are effectively in turn. So they basically always refer to, they always evaluate to themselves. And that means that different parts of the code can use the same thing and because they're sort of in turn for performance, um, most equality checks really turn into identity checks. And so they're very fast for that sort of comparison. And because of that, they're usually used to um, define constants um, or uh, standard keys in a map. If you want to represent some, some, some sort of information entity, a person or a company or whatever you have in your domain, um, you, you will typically use either a map or a record um, with uh, keywords as keys. And uh, because those are sort of standard known things that are used across the program, there we use keywords for that. Okay. Uh, I'd like to walk through the evaluation of a Clojure program. So if we start with a file that has some written Clojure code, we the, the first step of evaluating and eventually getting that to running code is 
we we take that file and pass it to a reader. What is the purpose of a reader? Yeah, so the the reader's job is to turn a string, which is closure code, or really things that look like closure code, um, into um, closure data structures. And so uh, this is where we get into Lisp's notion of treating code as data. And so the very the, the reader's step is really involved with taking a string and turning it into closure data. So when you see so closure being a Lisp, um, all expressions are represented with um, the parentheses around it, all sort of invocations are represented with parentheses, where the first element in the list is uh, the function position. So you're going to have something that evaluates to a function there. And then after subsequently, you're going to have all the arguments to that function. Um, when you read an expression like that, so if you have parentheses plus one, two, parenthesis, end parenthesis, that's going to be read as a list. And so it's going to be a list that contains a symbol, a number, and a number. Um, so that's sort of the syntax part of it, right? Um, at that point, nothing has been evaluated or anything like that. Uh, and then the next step is really to uh, go through compilation. And so uh, Clojure doesn't have an interpreter. It's all, all Clojure code is always uh, compiled. And so the compiler is going to, um, it's going to take that uh, Clojure data structure and convert it into uh, bytecode. And that's going to generate a class. And those classes are going to be loaded dynamically in the JVM's class loader. And then they're going to be invoked. Uh, and I'm skirting over lots of details about what exactly <laughs> happens, but that's the general that's the general process. Yeah. So when you get to the bytecode format, so is the is there a closure bytecode format, or is it just Java bytecode? It's just the JVM bytecode. Okay. Got um, it. And then the other really important step that that we left out there is macro expansion. And so we, one of the big features of Lisp has always been macros. And Clojure has macros as well. And the idea with macros is that when you treat your code as data, you can apply all of the transformation functions you already have in the language to transform the input code into um, some different output code. And so after a thing has been read, at the point when we go to uh, evaluate it, um, at that point, if we discover that the thing in function position is a macro, instead of... Um, compiling it, we can actually go off and run the macro first. And so when you invoke a macro, you give it literal code as data. So you give it a list containing a function or a symbol representing a function and the arguments to it. And then there's a bunch of facilities for, you know, concisely stating how we should transform that code into some other code. And you can then return that to the compiler. So you can think of macros as a way to, as sort of a user-provided compiler plugin. Uh, every macro is a little doing the job of a compiler, really, uh, in terms of taking code and transforming it into other code. Uh, and that's what gives Lisp and Clojure the sort of um, dynamic and f feel and the flexibility. And that's what, when people talk about the power of Lisp and things like that, that's, this is one aspect of it. Right. And, you know, you've said this a couple of times that in Lisp and adopted by Clojure, there's the ethos of code is data. What does that mean? What does it mean that code is data? Well, it's exactly what I mean. What I just said in, for, in terms of macro expansion is that um, I can treat my code that I write. Um, the, the initial code that I write might not actually, it's, not, it's often not going to be the actual code that's compiled by the compiler. 
Um, and so that allows me to do sort of metaprogramming, right? I can, I can write my own control structure that says, like, if I want if to work differently than it normally does, um, I can write my own control structure and the macro can translate that into um, an if or whatever else, um, whatever sort of larger structure I want it to, uh, you know, I actually want it to happen, which means that that source code that you're reading is not technically closure, right? It's things that are, um, so it's things that are in closure form and they uh, could theoretically be closure, but they don't have to be evaluatable in the form that they're stored in the source file. Um, you can take that and have, you might have one short expression that expands into something that um, defines many, many uh, VARs instead, many functions um, based on that. So you can create your, you know, you can create, say, I want to be able to create a, a software component or something like that. I'll create my own syntax for it, which is in parentheses and it looks like code, um, but all of the things inside of it it can have any structure at once inside of it. And then a macro can turn that into um, whatever, you know, simple or complex structure that it wants to uh, when macro expansion is run. Hmm. So this it ability, sounds... it gives you this ability to program up to the problem, kind of, is the idea. Sure, like domain-specific language composition, mm-hmm. sounds like. And one of the key differences, actually, with Lisp is that, um, so Lisp has the ability to, uh, create what are called reader macros, so you can you can sort of extend what kinds of things can be read by the reader. You can sort of plug into the reader itself. And Clojure very intentionally doesn't have that uh, because the one of the problems you can get into is that um, you someone else might not be able to read your code because they don't have your special reader plugin. And so Clojure. Um, uh, Rich made a decision a long time ago that that he didn't want that to happen. So uh, we don't have reader, reader macros. We do have some other things that take cover some of the same use cases, though. Okay, let's shift the gears completely and talk about concurrency. So before we get into how Clojure handles concurrency specifically. Why don't you give us an overview? What are the typical challenges that we deal with concurrent programming that can set us up for a conversation of how Clojure solves those problems? Yeah, I mean, I break, I break concurrency as far as we see it in, in most modern programs into a few different kinds of problems. One is sort of like being able to push something into a background thread. Like, I want to do this thing, but I don't actually need the result for it right now. And so I just want that, you know, I'm going to go call an external web service and at some point later I'm going to need the answer but I don't need it right now and so I want to do this sort of non-blocking um, background work uh, so that's one kind of a task um, another is I want to take uh, sort of a stream of work items and I want to have all my cores work on processing those items um, and so I call that queues uh, and workers and things like that or in uh, Java executors are, are sort of designed for this problem um, so that's, a, and then another kind of problem is sort of fine grained data parallelism. Anything that, uh, is commonly described like as embarrassingly parallel, like I want to, I want to execute a function for every pixel on the screen, you know, that sort of thing, mm-hmm. like a generating Mandelbrot images or whatever. Um, and so that's a, that's a similar problem in some ways to the work, to the workers and queues, but the, having a single queue, 
um, has scalability issues in terms of um, wanting to do all those things that don't actually depend on each other to get at the same, you know, if when you're computing a different function for everything on a screen, you don't need to go through a single queue to do that. You really want some more efficient way to manage all of that parallel work. And so they tend to have a different shape to the, to the solution. How does Java tend to deal with these concurrency problems and, and what kinds of problems does does Java's approach create? Uh, well, Java has a, a, a f- excellent set of tools for dealing with concurrency. Um, so, uh, I, so I have no, I have no knocks against against Java in this this regard. And I've I've done uh, a lot of Java concurrency programming, and and uh, it has a, an amazing set of tools. And the the people that are involved with that, you know, Duckley and and Brian Getz and all those guys are um, doing. Uh, phenomenal work, and so, so I don't want to say anything negative about any of that stuff. Um, but uh, they they have tools for uh, concurrent data structures, so things like concurrent hash map, and that's a that's a great building tool and something we use inside Closure and in the implementation of Closure. Um, they have the ability to create threads and to do things like wait for threads and and coordinate across threads. Uh, again, that's all really useful stuff and things that you can use directly from Closure. Okay, I guess maybe the the more the less contentious version of the question is uh, um, <laughs> how, how does uh, you know how does how does Clojure manage concurrency and why does that fundamentally contrast with how Java manages concurrency? I, I think actually um, Clojure doesn't contrast a lot with Java in terms of how it manages concurrency. I think mm. it contrasts a lot in terms of how it deals with state. And so uh, I'll, I'll reframe your question in that way. <laughs> yeah, please do. <laughs> uh, so we, we talked a little bit about uh, state and things like that earlier, but Clojure takes this fundamental, uh, fundamentally different approach to, to state in general. In, in Java, you typically are working from um, mutable objects that hold your state. Uh, and they have all these problems around locking and, and shared access to those things. And so the first level of it is, um, you, know, the, you know, and Brian Getz, uh, from who's the Java language architect, has, has famously said that a lot of the problems with concurrency boil down to shared mutable state. And the solution to that is to not share or not mutate. <laughs> so, um, and, and so in terms of not mutating, uh, using closures immutable data solves one chunk of the problem. Like there's a whole bunch of common problems that are just solved by just using immutable values to start with. Um, but you do really need to share state. Like most programs need have some state that needs to be shared across the lifetime of the program um, that you're going to maintain and update. And multiple people need to have references so that they can see the current value of that thing. And just passing immutable value around is not sufficient for that. You need to have independent entities that can coordinate over some shared piece of state. And so Clojure has a series of reference entities that uh, reference types that are that are used to provide that. Um, and all of those share um, certain things, which is um, all of them can be read at any time without blocking. And so that means that reads are always free or almost free. Um, if they're uncontended reads in the JVM, then they probably are uh, pretty they're very cheap, probably. Um, it, all of those things um, take an approach where um, uh, identity is separate from state. So the thing that you share is really an identity. And if you want the state at that identity, you will go ask it and say, 
I want to go, I want your current, the current value of your state. Um, and that when you want to update it, you pass something, not a new value, but a function that will produce a new value based on the old value. And uh, the key difference there is that um, if two different threads send a function at the same time, they're going to be applied in one order or the other. And with concurrency, you don't know which is going to happen. But because you're applying a pure function to an immutable value to produce a new value, you're never going to produce an invalid value in there. There is just a series of points that are new invalid, new immutable values, and there's a pure function that's being applied to take you from immutable value to immutable value. So you can never see bad state or, or partially defined state or anything like that. Uh, that's just sort of not available. And these types of of mutable reference types are vars, refs, and agents. Could you explain what these three different types do? Uh, yeah, you actually left out probably the most important one, which is atoms. Oh, <laughs> so, <laughs> but those those four are generally what we call the reference types. Um, so, um, uh, and I'm going to start with atom actually because it's, because it's the most commonly used for this kind of problem. And so, an atom is if you're familiar with Java, it's exactly the same thing as um, one of the atomic types in uh, Java util concurrent atomic. So it's something like an atomic integer. Or, uh, atomic reference value, or one of those kind of things. It's a it holds a single value, um, and you have the ability to um, update that value. Um, and the way that it's done in Closure is we're gonna we're gonna create an atom, and then you're gonna you're gonna call it with a function that can update it to a new uh, version of the atom. Um, and when and it really does this through uh, basically a, a spin lock. And so if it's uncontended, you're going to immediately succeed and set a new value. Um, if it is contented, then you're going to get in line between behind whatever other functions are out there. Um, and you'll just keep trying to modify the value over and over again. Uh, it turns out this all through, <laughs> through the JVM and all of the uh, great engineering below that, um, this turns out to be a really fast operation and, and getting uh, sort of uh, faster over time as well. Um, and so uh, that's actually the the primary means. Uh, it has turned out to be the primary way that uh, closure programmers share state is to uh, typically have a some sort of a compound value, usually a map, um, that holds the state of our application. Uh, and then you pass a function to it that says, modify that state and, and give me a new version of my state. Uh, and that becomes easy to test because you just got an immutable value. You apply a pure function to it, you get a new immutable value. So that's a that's a beautiful thing to test, uh, and it's easy to reason about and understand. Certainly, um, the problem with it is that you can't coordinate two of them. So there's no safe way to coordinate two of them together. And that's where uh, once you need to do that, you're going to have to introduce um, what are known as refs. And so refs allow you to coordinate a global timeline across stateful entities. And uh, that's done through a software transactional memory system. Uh, and this is, you know, long been, it was like one of the sort of calling cards for closure in the early days. Um, and it, it works great. Um, but interestingly, uh, it's surprising how much you can get done with atoms. And so I think for me, one of the big lessons over time has been that, um, Atoms actually get you what you need 90% of the time. And then you reach for refs and the STM 
you know, maybe 10% of the time. And the way that refs work is you define a transactional boundary and you define the actions that should happen against refs in that transactional boundary. And then the STM is responsible for applying that transaction. And because you're working purely with immutable uh, immutable values, and that's sort of this, this immutable value stuff is sort of, it's a really important assumption for so many parts of Clojure. Um, you can sort of speculatively apply functions to those refs and know that at the end of it, if somebody else happened to modify one of those refs in the meantime, I can just throw away my changes because the data is immutable. So the original values still exist. I still kept a handle to them and I can just throw away my sort of speculative changes and fall back to the original ones and then retry my transaction. So it sort of makes the, that sort of transaction recovery uh, a lot easier. Awesome. Okay. Um, so let's, Let's talk about other JVM functional languages. So there are these other languages like Scala and Groovy that have been built on the JVM. Why would I choose Clojure over the other dynamic JVM languages? Um, so I'd say Scala is not a dynamic JVM language, but it's another JVM language. Um, and so uh, oh, all right. of those are... I should have, I should have just said functional, functional languages. Yeah. Um, so I've done work in Groovy and Scala in the past, and and I have nothing uh, I have nothing bad to say about them. The, all these languages are uh, doing interesting things and, and making different choices um, in terms of uh, how they provide things to to users. And for me, what drew me into Clojure was really um, the the fact that everything in Clojure is really um, designed around creating tools for um, simpler code, like from having, you know, I've been doing programming for about 20 years professionally. And um, when I found Clojure, I was at a point where I was really kind of fed up with it. I had just done so much programming and I was so tired of fighting just sort of the incidental complexity of everything around sort of modern OO programming um, that I was about ready to like just give up and change careers or something or become a manager or do something else. Um, and so, um, Really, uh, so many of the choices in Clojure are about um, avoiding things that sort of cause um, incidental complexity and entanglement between parts of you know, features of the program and things like that. And I think that um, it's really continuing to find new ways to do that. And, and like the, the big new feature that we've been working on this year is called Clojure Spec, which is this tool for... Um, specifying the structure of um, data and functions, and uh, that's really it's it's a t it's a different direction than types, and it's a different way to provide some of the things that um, people want from types, but we believe in a way that uh, makes different trade-offs that are uh, more important for for most programmers. Could you talk about that in more detail, Clojure Spec? Uh, yeah, so this is the big thing that we've been working on, and it, it really lets you sort of, um, there's a bunch of key sort of premises baked into it. There's, I could probably do a whole show just talking about closure spec, but um, it, it's, the idea is that you want to build up a specification for your data, and you want to, at the bottom, base that on predicates. So we don't want to build a new language that describes types or uh, a custom vocabulary for those. We want to use existing functions uh, predicates 
in our language. So either things that are built into the Clojure core or functions that you already have lying around that might tell you that, you know, is this account overdrawn? Like that might be a function. And you can build a spec that describes your data based on that. Um, so it has, that's sort of the base. And then it has the ability to, uh, a number of ways to combine predicative specs uh, and compose them into larger and more sort of compound specs uh, in different ways. And then you get a bunch of things for, for free when you do that. So you get uh, you uh, those sorts of things get automatically attached to documentation, both sort of in your uh, in your runtime environment uh, and also in sort of whatever you uh, the documentation you generate. Um, you get the ability. Um, all of the specs actually are designed to produce uh, to act as generators, um, so they can produce example data that is conformant to the spec. Um, and so you can generate examples. Um, if you spec a function, you can not only generate examples, you can um, run a function called check that will um, generate ex um, things, uh, basically examples that um, are valid arguments based on your specs, invoke your function. Um, you have a, then a spec for your return type and it will verify that your return type the return that comes out of your function is valid. And then there's another spec called the, we call the FN spec or the fun spec, um, which actually allows you to relate the incoming arguments to the return value. And so you can write um, uh, very expressive specs that like, for example, if you have an index of function that takes a string and a search string, um, and it's going to return like the index that it matched on or something like that, you can write a, a function spec that says, um, that well, so the arg spec might say I'm taking a string and a string. The return spec might say I'm getting back an integer, and the fun spec might say I want to verify that my integer is in the range between zero and the count of the incoming source string. Um, and that's something that's much more expressive than you can say in most type systems. There are some you know languages like Idris and other things that are are trying to get this level of expressivity in type systems. Um, but, um, and you're doing all that just with normal closure code. So it's all sort of in the same language that, um, you're writing the rest of your program in. Um, Certainly. so, um, let's, let's talk some about the interoperability story. So if I'm an engineer at a Java shop, all the code at my company is written in Java and I want to start writing some closure code. Uh, is there any diplomacy that I'm going to need to do with the rest of the team, or to what degree is my closure code going to be interoperable with other people's code? Um, that's a good question. So there's really two sort of directions there in terms of um, using Java stuff from Clojure or using Clojure stuff from Java, right? And so from the first perspective, if you're like writing new closure code that's that you want to use existing. Uh, part of your existing Java base, um, that's generally really, really easy. Um, most people find that it's actually easier to call Java APIs in Clojure than it is to call it in Java. So <laughs> um, the interop is really nice, and it's it, you can do it at the REPL, so you can do it sort of, you can uh, sort of dynamically be sort of interacting with the Java API or whatever um, at the REPL as you develop, um, and that's a joyful thing compared to uh, testing and debugging most Java programs, from my experience. 
Um, and you have access to every Java library out there. So it's a huge library set of libraries, obviously. Um, most things um, work really, really well um, in terms of how they look and how they you interact with them in Clojure. There are certain restrictions because Java libraries, you know, uh, are going to use create mutable objects and things like that. So you have to be aware about um, those places where um, things assume immutab immutability in Java. I mean, in Clojure, uh, but you're using something mutable from Java. You, there are some things like that you have to be aware of. But in general, it's a uh, a uh, pretty, uh, a pretty nice and joyful thing to access Java from Clojure. Um, coming from the other direction, it really depends a little bit. There's a bunch of different techniques you can use. Um, there is a uh, a Java API for Clojure that lets you get access to vars which hold functions in J in Clojure and invoke them and and load code and do things like that. And so uh, there is that API. What I've found the best is to um, Define an interface that sort of separates the closure part of the code, um, and define that in Java. And write your normal interface, write your doc strings, generate your docs from it, do all that stuff, and then have your closure code um, basically implement that interface or interfaces, uh, and just sort of provide an implementation to an API. Uh, and I found that that works really, really well. Um, in a lot of today's infrastructure, I mean, people are building microservice architectures and apps and things like that. And we see lots and lots of people who are in companies where they have a micro, you know, some sort of microservice architecture and they have services in, in many languages and they, um, they interoperate basically by how they put messages on a bus or whatever. Uh, and so you're not actually calling directly into other languages. Right. Um, yeah. You have some kind of message passing layer and you're just sending JSON between different services so that it's like language independent. Um, so what what about like mental leaps? Are there any mental leaps that a traditional Java programmer would need to make in order to be effective in Clojure? Um, I, I think the, I, I think like one of the things that people expect to be hard is the immutable collection aspect. Um, in practice, I find that, is almost never a problem. Like it's just really, it 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 really is just not an issue <laughs> for most people. I think definitely the you know some people are turned off by the parens and the way closure looks. Most programmers that work in closure find that they stop really seeing them or caring about them after a few weeks or a month. Um, and so if it, that feels unusual, they get over that pretty rapidly. That's not true for everybody. Some people it, it is a hurdle. Um, and uh, I think laziness is one aspect. So we haven't really talked about closure sequences, but um, closure has a sort of unifying model for accessing accessing data structures called sequences. Um, sequences are really sort of a logical list abstraction, basically being able to treat any data structure as if it were a logical list and sort of traverse sequentially through the list. Um, one of the cool things about sequences is that they're also immutable and can be threads passed around in a thread-safe way. Um, and you can kind of blur the line between collections and sequences pretty seamlessly. Um, but they're also lazy, and so or can be lazy. And so you see a lot of times that um, it's, a, it's a common hurdle to uh, 
um, do something that uh, write a program that is so lazy that it doesn't actually do anything. So you forget to actually realize a lazy sequence at the end or whatever that actually is required to uh, produce all the data. And so that kind of thing comes up sometimes in the first six months for sure. So I had a listener ask, why does there seem to be a lack of design patterns in Clojure versus a language like Java? And I, I want to say up front, I, I don't, uh, this is not a value judgment on uh, Clojure. I don't think design patterns are necessarily a good or a bad thing, but uh, this listener seems to think that there is a lack of design patterns in Clojure. Well, I think there's two ways to take that. And so I think there's a sort of a glib way to say, oh, those design patterns are papering over flaws in the language. And, and so closure <laughs> is just better that way and whatever. Um, I, I don't think that's, I, I mean, I think there's maybe maybe some small truth there, but um, I, I do think there are some design patterns that are um, uh, working around inflexibility of, of different uh, calling patterns and things like that in Java. Um, but... Um, Really, I think uh, along that lines, uh, functions really um, get you out of so many jams. You can It's the sort of ultimate abstraction that if you want some variable behavior, you just pass a function in, and you can choose to pass different behavior later on. And so it's, it's not that the uh, – I think that um, things like you know, the Gang of Four design patterns – um, do describe problems that we run into in real code. And that's true of, it, of regardless of language. It's just that um, in OO, they've, you know, design patterns sort of fill this sort of, they're going to show you a structure that's uh, a bigger structure that's used to sort of satisfy that pattern. And in general, in functional programming, I think most of those needs are actually uh, handled pretty amply by functions. Um, but it's actually kind of interesting. Um, I, but I, I think another way you could you could look at this question is: um, Are there other problems that show up in functional programming that um, have their own sort of design pattern feel to them? And I, I think that's definitely true. Um, I think there are sort of uh, sort of application structural problems that have you know common solutions across. Uh, across F, different FP code bases and things like that. Um, so I don't, I don't think it's a... And I think that we have not... We as a... We functional programmers, we <laughs> have not done a great job of sort of cataloging or talking about those. Um, so th there are some talks out there, uh, in particular by Stuart Sierra, uh, where he looks at different design patterns and enclosure. So I would okay. recommend those. You recently wrote a book uh, called Closure Applied. Could you talk briefly about the goals of the book and what, uh, you know, maybe what we have not covered in this conversation that you that you cover in the book? Yeah, I wrote that with Ben Van Grift, and and so that was a that was a fifty fifty effort. So I want to make sure to mention him on that too. Uh, it wasn't just my book. Um, it, so our goal with that really was that when you look around the closure sort of learning landscape, there are now, I think, really fantastic getting started with closure uh, materials available, both in book form and on online tutorial form and uh, all those kinds of things. So in exercises, like all those things exist. Um, and I have good answers for if someone asks me about any of those things, I have good answers for pointing them in different directions. Um, similarly, there are some some smaller number, but 
excellent sort of more advanced or comprehensive resources, things like the joy of closure. Um, but we, what we felt was really missing that we were at the hole we were trying to plug was really uh, sort of, um, you know, a programmer who's, who's worked in closure for three months or six months or something like that. They understand the language, they understand the syntax, but they're having trouble actually structuring real applications. And so that's, uh, that was the gap that we wanted to sort of fit into. How can we start and assume you know the syntax pretty much in some of the core library, but you're not sure how to best use it and how to structure your applications. Hence the name. Exactly. Close your blood. Right. So um, let's talk a little bit about Strange Loop, which is a conference that you are the founder of. Um, what are the goals of Strange Loop? Like, how does Strange Loop differ from other software conferences? Because just uh, you know, in my personal experience, I watch a lot of the Strange Loop videos, and they're very entertaining, and they are somewhat different than other conferences. But I can't exactly put my finger on what makes them different. Yeah, so uh, Strange Loop is a conference I started in 2009, um, and it's in uh, St. Louis, which is where I live. And uh, my idea for it was really that I wanted to, like, in retrospect, if I had not come on the name that I did, Strange Loop, which I'm really happy with and, uh, <laughs> and I'm going to keep. But uh, if I had not come up on that, like, uh, another really good name would be something like Boundaries or Edges or something like that. Because I really wanted to explore places where or create a place where people from different computing environments could sort of overlap. And like the sort of notion of like where interesting things happen in the environment is at the edges of ecosystems uh, where things overlap. That's where you get speciation and all sorts of hybridization and things like that. And so that was what I was always interested in sort of uh, fermenting if, if you were, if I, if I can use that word. <laughs> no, I think that's, that's totally, that's totally descriptive of what I couldn't put my finger on. And I think a lot of the conversations end up being about distributed systems. And I find that distributed systems is so interesting because it's, it's a topic that's being tackled in, you know, in every domain from front end to back end and in all these different ways that do have interesting parallels. Like you look at how React.js handles something and it's, it, it tends to look some, somewhat similar to maybe how Kafka handles something. And, uh, and I find that distributed systems is maybe the, the thing that is tying these things together. Um, yep. Yeah, it's uh, funny. Like last year's was definitely uh, heavy on this distributed systems, and and to some degree, like it's funny how like every year I find there are, you know, I walk out of the conference at the end feeling like there was some sort of theme that I kept hearing about all through the conference, and um, I'm the you know sort of the lead person choosing the talks and and putting together a program. And I don't know what that theme is before I get to the conference, even though I know what all the speakers are and all the talks are, it's not obvious to me what that theme always is. And so it's really interesting to me how it becomes sort of emergent. There's sort of this, um, like there'll be a topic that's going on and it sort of infects all the talks or many of the talk, same, you know, talks. Um, and that sometimes it's explicit. Sometimes it's, it's just this sort of background, um, fuzz of what's going on right now and so like some years that like it's been 
some you know really about functional programming or about you know uh, static versus dynamic types or uh, NoSQL or whatever. So it's kind of changed over the years. So that was I, I definitely the distributed system area was. Uh, there were a lot of tire fire pictures last year. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> okay. Well, Alex, this has been a great conversation. I'm really happy you came on to have a conversation about closure. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks to Symphono for sponsoring Software Engineering Daily. Symphono is a custom engineering shop where senior engineers tackle big tech challenges while learning from each other. Check it out at symphono.com slash sedaily. That's S-Y-M-P-H-O-N-O dot com slash sedaily. Thanks again, Symphono. Wow.